Good morning. I'm glad we're sitting together again. I feel entirely ill-equipped for the talk that I'm giving today, but last night before I went to bed I had no talk. I felt completely depleted. I had no idea what I was going to say. And um, this morning I woke up the same way, and usually when that happens I ask for guidance and what came to me today I would say ancestrally, what came to me today were, um, were John Coltrane and Louis Armstrong. So they're going to feature prominently among other people. And it was interesting because you couldn't see it, but right before I started talking, the screen on the computer flipped over to the music, and in the middle was Aretha Franklin. So I take that as a, um, <laughs> a confirmation I'm on the right track. I want to talk about Zazen. I think when we find ourselves, although we're sitting together in this virtual space, many of us are sitting in spaces where we're sitting alone. I think sometimes sitting alone, it's harder to... In, in some ways it's easier to allow ourselves to navigate a, a, an emotional range, and and sometimes it's harder to tolerate the emotional range because there's a um, we don't feel the bodies next to us that are holding us so it's a bit of a mixed bag I think there's some advantages to sitting alone because we can let our body do what it needs to do to process what's happening for us and and in other ways it's it's encouraging to feel a body a few inches away from us that we feel is sitting there like a stone, although they feel we're sitting here like a stone, and everybody thinks the other person is the one who's perfectly still, and we're the one that's crazy. Um, but this mind that um, that may come up, that may um, wish for other ways of experiencing our body, of experiencing our histories, of experiencing our karmic habits that may compare it to something else and think, no, that was the better experience, that was the better way to be. You know, we say this all the time, but I don't feel like we can hear it enough. <laughs> because when our comparative mind is at full strength, we we just we believe it as much as we did the time before, even though we heard all the way through, don't believe the comparative mind. And yet when we're sitting and we're resisting or having difficulty with painful feelings that are coming up. And we're remembering fondly the easeful Zazen period. We're in it. So these are... This relationship, you know, in some ways the... the it's the... It's the comparative intellect that probably causes us the lion's share of our unnecessary suffering. But, in the body is housed a whole lot of old ancient suffering that isn't necessarily born of that comparative mind, that is born of lived situations. And our intellect is working very hard sometimes to keep us away from it keep us from feeling those feelings. <laughs> <laughs>
They seem to make their way up anyway, as we settle and we quiet and the body makes room for them and the feeling of separation that tries to transcend out of our experience settles. You know, more and more of the body and what's housed there makes itself known. There's more and more truthfulness. And I think that's what brought up for me, I think that's why these particular ancestors came forward that are connected to blues and jazz. Because I think there's, at a very young age, for me and my own personal story, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of musicians for me that had effect that I was, um, that were powerful for me, but there's really only one musician. So funny, every time I talk about him, I get like this. There's really only one musician that changed my life. And I would, and that was Coltrane. That was John Coltrane. There was something at 19 years old when I heard an album called Crescent. For those of you who know jazz at all, that gave me—I didn't have this language then—but gave me a road into my body. That gave me a way into life in a way that I hadn't ever known it before, in the forest, but not from people, not from human beings, not from other human beings. And the thing that, um, you know, Coltrane was very much, even though a jazz artist, very much rooted in the blues tradition, as were most jazz artists. They had a deep connection to blues as well. And um, what struck me about it, I think now when I look back, I'm spending all these nights where I would just sit at this time, there were not, there was an internet. People either had a TV or a stereo. That was it, and a radio. Those were the three options. And um, and I didn't have a television, so I would um, spend nights listening during this time. Spend nights just listening to Coltrane albums, one after another, after another. And um, what what strikes me now about his music and the music that. I'm going to talk about a little bit today, and why I'm talking about it is because I think it has something to teach us about Zazen, is that it wasn't going anywhere else. It wasn't a transcendent music that was trying to lift up into some other world that wasn't this one. It was a music that was going right into the center of this world as it is, and discovering peace there, discovering a path, discovering joy, discovering sometimes not even peace or joy, just articulating the world, the felt world in a clear, complete, whole way that was deeply human, deeply wise. And suddenly my body had a language that it didn't have before. And so Coltrane, Mingus, Ellington, just down the line, started pouring through them more and more into blues. And blues is, blues is the thing that I'm interested in talking about actually right now because I was thinking about, um, about where blues, especially Mississippi Delta pre-50s blues, early blues, 
where it takes us, and it doesn't take us out of this world either. You know, when um, when Louis Armstrong sings this, there's a song Fats Waller wrote called um, Black and Blue, but the main line is, what did I do that made me so black and blue? It's a genius line. Because in the... In the um, in Louis Armstrong's singing of it, which if you see him perform it, he performs it with a very steady gaze. There's a, um, there's the pain of his life that is talked about in the situation that he grew up, that in growing up in a race, racialized society that put him in a particular situation, his internal experience of that and then bringing the two words together, the violence that continues. But blue, that moment of um, singing that happens, that singing about suffering. You know, when Fats Waller, I mean not Fats Waller, when Leadbelly writes about, um, if you know this song in the Pines, where he, he, he is writing about a woman who is hiding in the forest in East Texas because she killed her husband, and um, probably self-defense. We don't know for sure. But it ends with, in the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines, and I shiver the whole night through. We're left in the pines. We're not left in some transcendent situation. We're left in the pines. There's, um, there's another song. These songs just started coming to me this morning as I was thinking about this. There's a famous song by um, Robert Johnson, called Love in Vain. He walks to a, walks to a train station with a woman who's leaving him, it seems like. And in the end, he's watching the train leave, and there's this line that just struck me. It was like, I, I think I spent my 20s trying to understand what he was talking about, which was, the train left the, train left the station, two lights on behind. The blue light was my blues, and the red light was my mind. It's just something just deeply brilliant about um, the one light representing this. I mean, for me, my interpretation is many, I'm sure, um, of this deep grief that's moving through his body. And then this other side that is probably just confusion and restriction, and mental pain, maybe anger, and we're left there, in that. There's not a happy ending, because it isn't a freedom that is rooted in something becoming happy. There's a there's one of my favorite things is and I'm just going to use one song to talk about the song before it because the songs do a better job than me. There's an amazing it's hardly talked about because it was purely improvisational. Ella Fitzgerald did this um, closing song in a club in London one night that she called that later I think was named Happy Blues, but as far as I can tell, she improvised the whole thing is improvised. I tell you, all those koan stories about spontaneity and spontaneous responses, 
Ella Fitzgerald would have chased a few out of the temple. <laughs> um, so she sings this song about happy blues because it's so funny. She's basically saying to the audience, I don't want you all to leave sad here. We've been playing blues all night, so I want you to leave happy. So I'm going to sing happy blues song. And then she talks about the blues song that were sung earlier that night and how sad they were. Oh, so-and-so sang about this woman who was so mean to him. I understand. I'm going to sing about this man who was so good to me. But then it always moves. The man that was so good to me. And then she, and then she said, except there's not a woman in the world that isn't crying. All women are crying. She just says this over and over. All women are crying. And then she starts singing some other happy stuff, and that moves into something. And at one point, she just starts, and this is just coming out of her. These aren't written down. At one point, she starts singing, um, Have you paid your dues? 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 Everyone at some point has to pay their dues. Meanwhile, this is Ella Fitzgerald, so it's this very 1940s big band boppy swing song. It's moving high speed. And, um, and finally, at the end, which I, after she sings a little bit more about being happy, at the end she says something that I think might be one of the most brilliant things. Is um, She says, All this happy music, I don't know what I'm singing about. With all this happy music, I don't know what I'm singing about. So I'm going to say goodnight. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's joyful the whole way through. There's something about the contrast of that, that the joy is not in the narrative. It's not in the words. It's not in the experience. It's not in the content. It's stepped back from that. The joy is in the song. The singing itself. And that the singing, that the song, is the stepping back from what is being honestly articulated about this life. That if you put, if you put, if you make the story one that is happy, when that happiness is dishonest, then it's not, then there's, there's a lie going on. And it's not to say there aren't happy stories, but that's not what the blues is doing. The blues is telling the truth about the reality of this life and the suffering in it. But from a place where its embodiment is transformed, where it's embodied in song, where it's embodied in joy, or it's embodied in clarity. So when Ella says, you know, one of the most, you know, she's like a music critic at that point. When Ella says, all, these ha all this happy music, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm singing about. There's something where she's pointing to, we've left honesty at this moment. We've left honesty behind. And so I don't know what I'm singing about. And I think that's the, um, that's exactly what, we as Zen practitioners can learn from, from blues, which is that um, our sitting is not about the narrative being good or bad or happy or anything like that. 
it's not about finding another state that is going to make it so that we don't feel suffering. It's not going, it's not any of that. The suffering is going to be there. And when the happiness is there, good. When the joy is there, good. But usually when we're sitting, a lot of suffering comes. Every once in a while we have a state where we feel good, or it's quiet. Good, that's good. A lot of quiet in the blues. But this chasing after states that um, that feel good, that are happy, that are blissful, the chasing after them, I think we end up right where Ella ended up, which is all this happy music I don't know what I'm singing about anymore. When we're in those states, they feel good, but we can't see karma there. We can't see what's going on. We can't discern in those places in the same way. Not that they're bad. We just shouldn't chase them. They're spontaneous. They come up all of a sudden. When they come up as the joy of the body, good. It's the joy of Ella and Louie's bodies singing the truth. When we chase after them to make them the content of our experience, then we don't know what we're singing about anymore. Then we're just lost. To live, to sit on our cushion with a straight body, with a devoted body, and I think it has to be a wholly devoted body. Over time, the whole of our body devoted to sitting meditation, allowing itself to honestly articulate this life, to honestly articulate itself. Sometimes that will be laughter, sometimes that will be wailing. But the way that the song steps back from articulating the truth of suffering, Zazen steps back from our articulation of the truth of suffering. So Zazen is that, Zazen for us is the song that steps us back from the articulation of suffering. It's not some um, cold, distant seeing. We are as close to the dynamic expression of life as the body as Ella is close to the word, the improv words that are coming out of her before she even knows they're there. The mind and body are so close where they're clearly one and their expression is coming forward. We are that close. There is no thread. There's nothing that can be slipped between. And so the body in Zazen is singing this very, very truthful song. And we're either getting in the way of it or we're allowing it or we're wishing it was something else. And this is the thing about the song the song is not, there's space in the song. Even though there's immediacy, there's also space. The song about dukkha, the song about our karma, the song about life is not getting overrun by it, buried in it, lost in it. There's no song when that's going on. There's just being, there's just sitting in our corner and being overrun by it. Song is when there's both immediacy and distance at the t same time that can stand up and sing 
the truth of existence. Sing the experience of what's happening. The body can sing it, which means it's moving through it. We're not curled over by it. We're allowing it to come out. We're committing to the courage of the articulation of what is happening as this body and life. And through that, there is freedom within it, and there is joy within it, and there is ease within it. The beginning of the Genjo Koan. As all things are Buddha Dharma, this is Dogen. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion, realization, practice, birth, life, and death, Buddhas and sentient beings. So there's all the things, there's all the discernment. As myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient beings, no birth and no death. This is the realization of the emptiness of all things. And then he goes on to say, the Buddha way, in essence, is leaping clear of abundance and lack. In other words, leaping clear of things existing and things not existing, or things existing as the way that we think they do, with our discerning mind, and realizing their emptiness. It's leaping clear of abundance and lack. Thus, there is birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. Yet, and this to me is the blues line, Yet in attachment, blossoms fall, and in aversion, weeds spread. <laughs> Even in all of this realization, life is life, and the mind does what the mind does, and dukkha returns, and suffering is here, and we are living with all of this. When the mind grasps the blossoms of our practice, the blossoms of the world fall, in aversion, weeds spread. And this is what the mind is doing. That yet reminds me of that story, which I think we've all told before. <laughs> but um, the story of the monk who was married prior, and um, his son died when he was old, and so he was a he was the head of a temple apparently by this time. And I think this is rooted in a true story, but I always forget that piece. Um, I forget which which person it is. Somebody may know. I'm going to say it was someone like Hockwin, somebody famous, but I can't remember. Um, and he's wailing. You know, so many of you know this story. He's wailing. And his monks come to him in the same way, and they say, they basically state the second line. You know, don't you know without abiding self, there's no delusion, no realization, no Buddha? You know, they, they say to him, don't you know everything's empty? What's going on here? And he comes back with the final line. He says, yeah, well, that's true. And yet. And this is the, um, this for me is what makes our way beautiful. It's not the realization of emptiness, which can leave you dry and boring. It's not, um, it's not any of that. It's the return. It's the return to life as tender, fragile, difficult, annoying, dying, being born, grieved, joyful place. 
and to be unattached enough from one's own self-reference that the song of that can be heard. That the song of that is understood as right in the middle of the arising of Dukkha. It is right there. To not understand that is to put liberation somewhere else. To not understand that is to think that somehow this messy life is going to resolve itself in a way that we don't have to worry about the messiness anymore. That the lotus is going to exist without the mud. So I I think I'm going to stop now. I will just encourage us, whatever arises today, whatever it is, to step back, allow it to speak itself, try not to get in the way, and let the song that wants to unfold as our zazen unfold. That nothing we are going through, whatever it is, was not gone through by the ancestors who sang songs to encourage us to go through what we're going through. And that's very different for different people. But the blues tells us the truth about what people are going through and what the world is. I know one other thing I was going to say. Another person who came up during this, the rising of this talk this morning was my grandmother. And, and there's, there's a, um, Laura and I were talking about this phrase, if it's not one thing, it's another. And how that phrase, as a child, there were two ways that I heard that phrase used. One was exasperation. It's not one thing, it's another. But another way that I heard it used was actually a way that I deeply appreciate now, which was, don't let what's happening to you get upset you all that much. Because if it's not one thing, I promise you, it will be another. And, um, and my grandmother was like that. She did not, she would not have found what we do in a Soto Zen monastery where you just do the next thing without fuss very impressive. She would find it odd that most people didn't live that way. And um, and this sitting down to Zazen, this sitting down and and these this different aspects of the song coming up, there is a piece to it that, you know, there's no reason to manipulate this one, because if it's not going to be this one, it's going to be some other one. And so when is it that we're just going to stop the manipulation? whatever's coming up now there's another thing coming and the freedom will be in the allowance of the arising not in the arrangement of the arising that ain't gonna happen at the end of the day she always when it got dark because she didn't start working until stop working until it was dark she would sit on her glider on the back porch and drink buttermilk hot buttermilk every night <laughs> and um, and not say much hardly say anything at all just watch the rest of us and to me 
that um, the language of grandmotherly mind is that mind. People focus on the kindness of it and all of that. I'm not so, it's because I think if I'm right, the character is old. It's not, yeah. And um, I feel it is that mind, actually, the mind of my actual grandmother who would sit and just watch. Been alive long enough not to get all caught up in the dramas of grandchildren. Or even get caught up in the conversation, but just to sit back. I mean, she was raised on a farm and lived a life on a farm, so there was a certain quietness to her bones. But she, um, she would just watch, and she wouldn't get caught up. I never heard her say a lot of words. And so that's the mind to me. That, that to me is the old mind or the grandmotherly mind as I feel it for myself. And so that's also this mind of stepping back and being with without getting caught up. A very quiet song that we're living together. So now I will stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.